All right, I've got to do our cold open with a huge thank you to a dear listener who gave me some Aldi decaf coffee. Oh, top job. Amazing. I'm just like genuinely pleased that we still have listeners after going off air for I don't even know how long. I just assumed we'd be shouting into the void. So thank you, everyone, like 90-odd of you who downloaded the latest podcast, which is most of you, honestly. I don't know whether you listen to it, but you downloaded it, and that's what counts because that's what I can measure. So, obviously, you're probably one of the 100 people who know that this is the Affix podcast, the conversation between Chris and Brian talking about musings on the internet in various forms and crazy coffee bets on 10 years' time economic forecasts that Brian is bound to lose. And You have lost a lot lately, I'm not going to lie. So, you know, that's, that's how we go. So, the way we normally kick stuff off is by looking back at last time. And I did actually make notes while editing last time. So, I have some notes I was like, I brought up my like thing. It's been, what, two months since we last did an episode? So I can look at this and look back and go, okay, what on earth did we talk about last time? I just listened to the whole podcast again before we did this one. All right. So uh, maybe you can tell me what it was about and and why this comment feeds into it. Mm. So I had a reflection, but I don't remember making it at all, was what effect on, you know, wokeism in general was the death of Gorka? Like Gorka Mm. as the media platform sort of like there was all this internet vile hate media journalism going on there and then it died out and thank god for it but just so many other forces have bubbled up since then i'm just wondering you know if you've got any thoughts on that yeah it's an interesting point so gorka for those who don't know whereas a early thousands publication that was very gossipy really liked to you know gossip about celebrities particularly and it was taken out via lawsuit by peter Thiel, because they outed Peter Thiel as gay when he did not want to be out and he just wanted to be known as a venture capitalist, not as a gay venture capitalist sort of thing. And then he spent 10 years, made an entire law firm, uh, brought in the help of Hulk Hogan to take down Gorka via a multi-multi-million dollar lawsuit, which destroyed the entire empire, stripped it for parts that Gorka, sort of the brand still exists, but it is not the Gorka that it ever was. There is a fascinating book on it by Ryan Holiday called Conspiracy, which is one of my favorite books, I reckon, of all time. That goes through the whole saga. But yeah, so Gorka got destroyed. And I guess the point you're trying to make is that a lot of the wokeism seems to come from the journalist class, the the very liberal, uh, very urban kind of class that lives in Brooklyn and talks about that. And Gorka was the center of the journalists. We talked a lot about journalists being paid in status kind of thing, being close to, I can't remember the guy who founded Gorka, but being close to him and doing cocaine at his cool drug-fueled parties was like, that was the thing you wanted to do. That was the, That's how you made it as a journalist. So all of the journalists were trying to, do the same sniping and doing what their peers do and trying to get paid in status. But like that was the ultimate goal was to do cocaine with the guy who ran Gorka. Gorka. That's what everyone's doing. So now that he's gone, are the incentives messed up that um, there are no central parties and that this is, that, you know, wokeism, as you call it, is the, the religion that everyone's glommed onto without a central leader? Or did they all just migrate to the New York Times and the New York Times had this like bud of woke culture yeah. there that just bloomed when all the talent from Gorka went across there and, you know, got in their insular culture? Yeah, and I actually don't know how much of the talent as it, no, from Gorka came there. It seems to just be more of a social phenomenon that, like, there is one hub of journalism, I guess. And, yeah, yeah. it was Gorka back in the day, and it's New York Times now. Uh, and so all the aspiring journalists are trying to impress those guys so that they get links, so that they get retweets, so that they get likes, whatever you're looking for when you're a journalist. Uh, and, yeah, maybe that bud being 
you know, in New York City being a somewhat liberal magazine uh, was already there. And then when everyone sees like the way that to get noticed, the way to get my blog linked or whatever is to write the, what is it, the 1814 project or something yeah. like that. Something like that. It, it, it's definitely plausible. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And yeah, we were talking about journalists and the status economy, I guess, of being a journalist because you don't get paid in real money. No, it's all about status. Such a Robin Hanson thing. Now that I've been listening to so much Robin Hanson, it's like, wow. He's, um, he's broken my brain a little bit. Cool. Uh, building on the topic of status, we mentioned that, you know, status is a bit of a younger person's game. You're more willing to trade off money for status, you know, as long as you've got some level of financial security as a young person, just to be, you know, in the same room as Kanye or whatever, just to have those anecdotes and tell those stories. And I just wondered how much of that is having more time building human capital or accumulating human capital as part of like a status arms race. So like there used to be, I don't know, when you'd have kids at a very young age, right? Right. That yep. shifted your focus away from these kind of status games often because you just had to support a family basically. So you yep. had a role to play in society, which was supporting your family rather than just accumulating status and accumulating human capital, whether it be in, you know, university accumulating human capital, whether it be playing these status games and accumulating status. And I don't know. I was just like, has those demographic trends been playing through as well on that front? I really reckon it might be. And that's a, it's a very interesting point. Although it's not like, you know, queens and kings weren't status hungry. You know, they're canonically families, like the royal lineage family is everything about it. But I do yep. find it interesting. Like a lot of culture is youth culture, right? Because the youth have so much more time to engage in culture and critique culture and write about culture and talk about culture. Because all the parents have got to look after the youths. <laughs> Um, so yeah. I do think that is an interesting point that like when, you know, when the typical first pregnancy would be at, I don't know, 19, 23, whatever. I remember reading a stat recently that for the first time ever, more than 50% of women age 30 don't have kids in the UK. Yeah. Wow. So certainly first pregnancy always used to be in your twenties sort of thing. Whereas I think it's quite common. The first pregnancy is in your thirties, certainly amongst my friendship group. So yeah, that just gives you an extra 10 years to play these <laughs> status games before you actually have to you know, look after a family with your life. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't know how this ties into it, but I've got this like little anecdote here to myself about like, I don't know, life in the olden days, looking back to my working class childhood, uh, taking it back to shearing. There's this old anecdote that my dad used to tell, which was like when he was about 19 or 20, just like coming up, got out of school, becoming a shearer. He looked at his dad and is like, so how, how can you do it? How can you shear so many a day? How can you shear 200 sheep in a day? And his dad sort of looked at him and is like, have kids. <laughs> and that was it. It's just like that additional burden either sharpens the mind or alternatively, a pessimistic read is you just want to be away from the kids and working all the time. I don't know. Yeah, but. I was wondering I was wondering what your read was. Is like, yeah, I have a family, so I just have to shear 200 sheep a day or I can't support them. So I've just got to work really hard and do it. Or is it like, otherwise I would have to go home to my family and I would much prefer to be here shearing sheep. So I will do anything to stay away from them and I can just work 16 hours a day and then you can shear a lot of sheep in 16 hours. Well, my grandfather had six kids, so both seem equally oh, likely. a lot of kids. Yeah. A lot of kids. Kids are pretty cheap back in the day. You didn't force feed them and you didn't have to buy car seats for them. That's true. I, like, uh. here's, here's a musing of mine. Like car seats have probably saved a lot of children's lives and I think that they're quite good. But like the faff and the fuss and the giganticness of them. Like how many fewer kids are born because of car seats? Like a lot. going beyond three just feels nearly impossible. Even getting to three kids feels nearly impossible because then you've got to find a car that fits three car seats wide. 
It's like, I can't do it. I'm just going to stop it too. I mean, there's whole, there's a free economics podcast about this. There's economic articles about it as well. It's just, is there really? it is a big impact. Yeah. Like introducing car seat laws does have a noticeable or, you know, you can actually economically analyze it to have an impact on the number of children that people have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that totally doesn't surprise me, but I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued that the people have measured this before. I'll see if I can find that free economics episode for my, for my links and for myself to listen to. Cool. Okay. And then I just had one last little thing. We discussed Tyler Cowan on context is that which is scarce. We did. And we were like musing about like, okay, it is a really good motivator for being curious and being an infovore like Tyler is to just want to know all the different contexts around there. And then you can appreciate the world in different ways and more thoroughly, more appropriately, whatever. And it also felt like a building on Tyler's interest in persistence economics. So he's had these conversations with uh, Nathan Nunn, he's the main economist I can remember about it, who looks at kind of path dependence on regions as to, you know, North Vietnam versus South Vietnam. Okay. The cultural impacts of how close they were to the ruling king. How does that play out, you know, centuries down the line? Yep. Yep. Oh, by the way, if you can't tell people, I'm going to edit out the coughs, but COVID, yeah, Brian has COVID is a bitch. I'm hoping that I don't have COVID through the microphone. Brian's coughing a lot. We're going to edit this down from like a three-hour podcast to about the 15 minutes you guys will hear. Anyway, persistence economics just seemed like an interesting piece for where context is that which is scarce kind of plays into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess the last 500 years is a, a lot of context that you have to absorb to really fully understand why systems are the way they are. Yeah. For sure, for sure. Cool, that was it. That was my three notes to myself. So did you get anything, Chris? I, I mean, I didn't make any notes to myself. I just laughed at my own jokes like I always do. I make some funny jokes. I'm very funny. I enjoy listening to my this podcast. <laughs> it's possibly my favorite. I should listen to it more often. I should go back and listen to some of the early episodes. Good old narcissistic Chris. Good on you. Yeah. Topic this episode that we're discussing is from a blog called The Roots of Progress. Fantastic blog. I think we've almost certainly mentioned it before. They covered off, I think it was the history of the bicycle or something like that. Yeah, that was their best one. Although I do liked it. I think I've heard it described of like, what if historians were all hyper-libertarians? Then what would history look like? And that's pretty much this block. That's pretty fun. <laughs> that still sounds like a fun pitch to me. <laughs> it's good. It's got some good insight. Like, I mean, that, that's this blog and it's fun. But like, dude, dude is even more libertarian than, you know, you and I. Not that we're that far on the spectrum, but this guy's like out there. I feel like 90% of what you read from just like not left-wing American is going to be far more libertarian than you or I, Chris. I mean, that's probably true. Yeah, we're not actually that far out there. We just read a lot of Brian Kaplan. That's, <laughs> yes. Our Overton window has definitely been stretched on that axis. Yeah. Yep. True facts. So Roots of Progress, it's a blog. It was founded in response to Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collison. Patrick Collison is the CEO of Stripe and one of the founding brothers of it. Uh, they had this reflection on, we need a studies of progress. We need progress studies to basically exist uh, back in 2019 because you know we've discussed previously the great stagnation. We wanna know why productivity growth isn't continuing to grow at the clip it was. Roots of Progress kind of came out of that saying, yep, okay, let's take an interdisciplinary look at progress. Yeah, what, what drives what it? progress? What, what, why was it Where so did it good come during from? the 1900s? Why does it seem to have slowed down since the 70s? Has it slowed down? Are there ways to speed it up? Um, you know, can we increase our rate of progress going forward? 
All that good stuff. I think that would be the overall goal. Like progress studies is interesting from an intellectual point, but I think that what they really want is like, how can we build better institutions that will speed up progress going forward? Definitely. And again, ties into Tyler's view in stubborn attachments that, you know, continued growth is really, really important and super, super powerful. So there is a somewhat firm philosophy behind it as well, behind the desire for it. So this guy, Jason Crawford, is the basically head of the Roots of Progress organization. He uses this post called The Lure of Technocracy as kind of a summing up point as to where he's gotten in the last two years, looking at all these different perspectives, trying to understand where growth comes from and, you know, do progress studies on his own. He's actually started it as an institution now in the last few months and he's bringing on additional staff to help him out, which is cool. Which is cool. Uh, And this post, The Lure of Technocracy, is kind of looking at where are we now and why does it feel different? Why do we feel this kind of tension? And he doesn't explicitly say it, but I kind of read it as we've got all this literature. You know, if we look back, if we do the Brian thing and look at the great conversation and look at all the progress we made and look at, you know, late 18th century slash 19th century writings from the classics, liberal ideologies classic liberal, that is, uh, you know, freedom of personhood, all that kind of great stuff, property rights, seems big. And it seems like we've got a lot of faith in progress should just exist and it should just come about. And as of the 1960s, we don't really have that anymore. Why is that? Why do we feel so jaded? And it kind of looks across this post going, okay, well, if you take that view, what it was, was Around the turn of the 20th century, there was all this hype around we can take a technical approach and apply the rigors of science that we have developed to better society. As long as we have the right people at the front, they can take a real analytic mindset and look at what works, what doesn't, and apply that to basically anything, however you want to run it in our society, whether it's a good business, whether it is a road network, something like that, whether it's war. We can take these principles of science and we can make them better and more efficient and it'll be better for society. Sure made war more efficient. I don't know whether I'd call it better. And that was the true horror. Like that's that was where the blowback was in the mid 20th century was we had World War One, and good Lord, if you listen to Dan Carlin's podcast on. Oh, I had to stop. It's so brutal. Like you sort of have an idea of World War One was a bad. That's why they called it World War One. But. Man, listening to Dan Carlin's podcast, it was a horror show. It was just life in the trenches was unbelievably, unbelievably bad. Yeah, like just go on a tangent because we can. It's Anzac Day tomorrow and my wife was trying to explain to my six-year-old son Anzac Day and like you don't celebrate it. it you just It's about honoring soldiers and their loss and why we remember things and all that kind of stuff. And he was a six-year-old boy and was like, oh, it's all awesome. War's awesome. And I'm like... Nope. Oh, buddy, you're not going to understand it for another 20 years, but we'll get you there, mate. So, yeah, it's a tough thing. Um, anyway, they certainly made killing people much, much more efficient through scientific With methods. Scientific rigor, indeed. And it turns out that not all progress is positive on that front. That's for sure. And then to back it up, we had World War II, which took it another step further. I mean, the suffering wasn't as great, but it was still pretty darn great. I mean, if you factor in China, it probably was almost as great as World War One. Sure. 
so yes, you can understand why there would be some blowback on the natural assumption that progress is good. Somewhat like, I suppose, what I'd see now in the last 20 years as to blowback against just free speech is good. You know, the liberal internet movement that... Yeah, I remember in the early days of the internet, which is like, now that everyone's able to talk to each other and you can talk across cultures and there's all this communication, everyone's going to end up agreeing with me and all of my prior biases. It's going to be fantastic. And that didn't happen. Whoops. Who'd have seen that coming? As long as we can all have a reasonable conversation, any bad information that gets out there will just be discussed and disproven. It'll be fine. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. So, you know. It's very difficult to determine what bad information is. Indeed, indeed. So, you know, hitting against these limits and actually finding them and getting a bit jaded is its kind of a familiar story, really. Uh, and where it gets to is like, okay, if you take that lens and look at it on the 20th century, come the baby boomers, you know, coming out of World War II, everyone's terrified of nuclear Armageddon. We're also getting jaded with the government come Watergate, especially, like, I think up to, you know, JFK. There was quite a bit of trust in the government implicitly. Like, that's a narrative that's around. There was just huge trust in yep. public institutions. If the president said it, it was all good, whatever. Who cares about him having a couple of affairs on the side? What a sneaky fella. And then Watergate came out and they're like, whoa, some of this stuff's kind of crazy. And they were already primed to not be trusting people. And it's all the boomers' fault that we don't believe in progress anymore, is all I'm saying. Yep. Woodstock's fault, maybe. Maybe Woodstock had a big part. Maybe. Maybe some of that. And that's kind of where he's gotten to. Is like, okay, I understand the hypothesis. I understand where we came from. We thought we had this power of progress through scientific method and that it was going to be good as long as, you know, you had progress going, as long as you had the right people at the top, which, of course, we will because we'll have good elites and our elites are not regular people who are just dumb as whatever. They're elites for a reason, right? Listen to their speeches. They're so eloquent. It's almost like they were pre-prepared to say this. It sounds fantastic. And then what happened was uh, we had a big war or two and it was terrifying and then even more terrifying things came out of those and then it turned out that the elites weren't that trustworthy and now we've just got a really... We're just really down on progress, I guess, was the was the blowback reaction to it. Yeah, that's his interpretation. And you talked about things feeling different now, but I actually... I don't know. I can get. I definitely get the lack of trust in government. I think that that is much more pronounced now than perhaps it was in the sixties. Although maybe that's just our perspective. And you look at some of the things that happened with the strike breakers and the democratic machine, to, which was basically just a corruption machine, which would just pull homeless people off the streets, give them a bottle of alcohol, and tell them to vote, kind of thing. Which all seemed fairly well known. So maybe just like the current scandal seems truly scandalous, and we know we made it through the past. Okay, so like the past must have been great and virtuous and upheld and whatever. But like I. I sort of agree that we're in the grand stagnation. I think if you look at total productivity, and I read a lot of the blogosphere that is in that mindset, but like how many conferences have you gone to? And maybe you don't go to the same conferences that I do, but it's like things have never been changing faster and the pace of change is only picking up and the only constant is change and, you know, everything's changing and technology, technology, and you've got to be prepared for tomorrow and do more with less. Like that seems to be the underlying theme of every conference that I go to, that like look at all this amazing new technology, look at all the cool robots we've got, look at the self-driving trucks, look at the way we can track people around the internet and they love it so much and we can advertise it straight into their brain and they're like, thank you for these ads into my brain. I love them. <laughs> I, I heard a guy had to do a whole half hour presentation on that. I'm like, you're crazy, dude. You do not understand people at all. You can do this, but they're not happy about it. 
Yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't know. When I did go to conferences, I'm going to say it was 2016, 17 was like my peak conference time. Definitely those messages were there, but it was like also the time when I started reading about the Great Stagnation. And I'm like, Mm. oh, I'm a little bit worried here. But then again, like we talked about last year about is the Great Stagnation over? Some of the stuff coming out of AI firms right now is Mm. astonishing. Yeah, we've got a link to Ali too. Terrifying and astonishing. But it seems like it's actually thinking, like actually, actually thinking. Yeah. So there's there's stuff happening, but it's just it's So where I will say that there is a, a pessimistic pessimism towards capitalism is I guess in the youth, sort of a lot of youth is trans uh, translated away from capitalism, like the late stage capitalism subreddit used to be quite popular. Bernie Sanders seems to be much pop more popular with young people. Um, although that's an interesting one. Like a lot of this seems to be like, oh, we don't have trust in institutions and governments anymore. And then but like, but a lot of the young people are like, what we need is Bernie Sanders to, you know, get rid of all the capitalists and put all our trust in government because government will just fix everything for us. Yes. Thank you. So this was kind of, this is where I was going with it. If we can blame it all on the boomers, there is a huge amount of blowback on the boomers right now as well. Right. Mm, so yep. If they were less trusting of government, surely the blowback would be, will be more trusting of government. And if I also contrast this, what really got me thinking about this particular article was there was an article by our probably second most covered writer, Matty G. Ah, good old Matty G. Matt Iglesias, looking at the end of history and Francis Fukuyama and how it still holds up in Matt Iglesias' view that we are not in a situation where we are like weighing up, oh, what's the better way to govern people? Is it communism? Is it capitalism? Oh, there's no big, like, we're like, no, it's just a matter of having a representative democracy and how you structure that to eliminate corruption is what you do. We're not worrying about whether kings are a good thing or anything, right? And I'm like, I feel like we do have that tension. And that tension is there's a lot of commentary out there looking at the likes of China and Singapore and saying, technocracy is great. Look at what they have done. And it feels like on that front, technocracy is on the rise again. And exactly as you say, like a youth movement is there kind of blowing back the assumptions of the elders saying we should support more state capacity in the government. And just a bigger state in general. Yeah. Yeah. I have to get my technocracy quote out of the way. I don't know. I'm going to put this on the podcast, but I loved particularly during the early days of COVID sort of thing was like, first, all the Western commenters will be like, Ah uh, well, China can't possibly contain this, so we in the West didn't do it. And then a few months later, it's like, ah, uh, well, China's just lying about their numbers. They can't possibly have contained it. They're just like, that's what happens with these corrupt governments is they don't report the kind of thing. And then a couple of months later, it's like, well, really, when you look at it, this is what the kind of thing that an oppressive government's really good at. So it was inevitable that they would contain uh, COVID better than the West. Oh, uh, gosh, yeah. What a classic. And then China right now. Just to throw away, just so Chris includes it in the links of Zvi's coverage of China and COVID at the minute. It's kind of weird information territory. They did remarkably well for a long time. But yeah, it's hard to know what's going on. They're doing such incredibly fierce lockdowns, it looks like, but it's still growing. It sort of almost doesn't even make sense. Indeed. Cool. So that was the main point that I wanted to make out of it. And yeah, I don't know. What did you think of it generally, Chris? I got a few other notes here that I hadn't rattled off, but yeah. Yeah, I guess my pushback, I don't know, I can always, the vibe of the thing being that no one believes in progress anymore, I just, doesn't ring true for me. Like, I think that we have stopped progressing. I think there is sclerosis in a lot of our institutions that has slowed down the possibility of progress. But I just don't get that vibe from talking to the everyman. I get that vibe from anyone who reads Tyler Cohen or Scott Alexander or, you know, deep into this weird world that we find ourselves. But I just don't 
feel like that's the view of the public. I think everyone really likes their smartphones. Everyone likes that Android's now built into their car. You know, everyone likes talking to their house and this all seems, you know, cool and futuristic and high tech and that's good because the progress is good and we still like it sort of thing. There are corners of the internet that don't, but I still, I don't know, I still feel like I see a mostly positive vibe in most of my friends. Maybe it's an insular group. Yeah, I feel like it's, I started a new job lately and I went out to lunch with a few guys and they were talking about like how amazing it is that, you know, they have Alexas in their house. And I don't know, this one guy, he'd be about 40 in his 40s or something, maybe 50, and was talking about how his dad was just like floored by having this AI sitting in his house that he could just ask to play music for him and stuff like that. And it's like, when I was big on the great stagnation hypothesis, I was like, well, we're not really having anything that would floor people. Like if you could, if you went from riding a horse to driving a car, that's kind of like a, wow, like, or even more so riding a horse to seeing a plane flying. That is a big shift. And I don't know, to see that kind of interaction, even secondhand, of someone being floored by having an artificial intelligence be able to play music for them, streamed online. I don't know, it's it's interesting. I think it's pretty big. Like, I mean, I just opened all my curtains for a friend who was visiting. Like, this is a friend who already has home automation in his house. And when I said, hey, robot, open the curtains, and the robot replied, okay, opening 15 curtains. He was like, holy hell, you really have a fully automatic house. This is amazing. Yep. So definitely cool stuff. I don't know. Again, it's back to that atoms versus bits um, stuff, right? And it feels like a lot of it is in the information world and we're getting real, real good at, at automating and applying bits and entertaining our information-seeking brains by getting ads that make us pay more attention to them somehow. Yep. But what's the physical impact? I don't know. Is it really progress? probably in a way, but it's hard to measure. It's just hard to measure. Exactly going back to your earliest conversation. Yeah, what's the GDP growth of me talking to Google? Nothing, because it, it's a free service once I bought the like $20 puck. Yeah, that was always my big skepticism on it. It was like, okay, Facebook's free. Facebook also takes up a huge amount of people's time now. What's the actual value that that is delivering outside of just ad revenue? Probably pretty yeah. big. Is, is GDP the correct way to measure these inventions? And I will say like, just uh, because I follow cars a lot, like the technology in cars, looking at like, I think it's the new electric Hummer that they've made, but it can do things like each of the front and rear wheels can turn independently. So you can crab walk the whole thing and drive sideways. And like for off-roading, this can be great because when you're stuck in a ditch rather than the front wheels coming out forwards and the rear wheels just having to kind of dumbly drag them their way out while trying to basically drive forward all four wheels point out of the ditch and you just drive out of the ditch directly sort of thing um and you can drive around rocks it's like it feels like cheating off-roading like you know tight corners that used to be incredibly difficult because you can just about spin around in a circle it's so easy like and i think that level of bits controlling atoms is still relatively new and hasn't been into the public. And the same thing with my house, right? Like the fact yeah. that I can have a motor with a Zigbee radio in that will talk to a stack of five other computers would have like, you would have had to be Bill Gates 20 years ago to afford the technology stack to do that. And now it's about $20 a part off our Express. Yeah, yeah. It's a matter of getting those building blocks on top of the stack to make it accessible for people, to make it yeah. you know, as user-friendly as Apple products, basically. Yeah, which it's not there yet, but it's at the point where I can build almost anything, like as a technically-minded engineer kind of thing. Like the cheapness of the parts that you can get to control any single thing in your house is absolutely minuscule. So I do feel like there's a big wave coming. Yep. But 
yeah, the user friendliness is not there yet. It'll take a bit. Whatever we haven't cracked, we haven't cracked it yet. Like we said, we're getting good at organizing bits and that's just user interface is pure information. So if yep. we've got the hardware overhang, we're going good. We'll get there. We'll get there, I think. All right. I don't know if I'll include this bit, but my last one thought to like take it away from just general progress studies was to look at a specific claim in here. And it mentions like a general theme back in the old days, in 1935, when people still believed in technocracy, a general view that there was going to be a technological utopia with a technological elite that forms an enlightened scientific world government. And Robin Hansen mentioned a whole world government as well yeah. in like yep. one of the Minds Almost Meeting podcasts. And it just seems like such a foreign concept to me to think that that is just the natural outcome of the progress in humanity. I don't know. Oh, really? Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think that absolutely seems like the natural outcome. I have this, like, I just feel like we've gone from tribes to fiefdoms to countries to super countries or federations kind of thing. Uh, and it, it does feel like we just get bigger and bigger blocks of humans pointed in roughly the same direction. And that comes with a lot of problems, but it comes with an enormous amount of power. And that potentially a one world government would be the culmination of that. I can see why it might be a two world government, uh, maybe a more stable point at the end there, but I could definitely see a one world government being the the climax of, you know, humans growing into more and more, you know, larger and larger political entities. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I've always thought it as, I'm not going to say in a thousand years time, assuming human civilization exists and progress has continued, that the exact number of countries that we have now, be it 191 or 205, however you count them, um, that that's going to stay the same. Maybe it will. Maybe nuclear power is just that terrifying. But I don't know. I look at stuff like Terra Ignota, where you've got these kind of five modal points of the different hives or whatever. And you just see that as more stable or more likely? or I see that as having effects of dynamism that continue to propagate progress rather than leading to some kind of stagnation if you have a single world government. I mean, that's a very libertarian point of view. I suppose that you need competition in order to drive progress. But um, I, I don't think it will be countries. Like, I, I think the one world government will not be seen as a country. Like, what was the country of Germany prior to Bismarck? It wasn't a country. Yeah. Like, it's not like there was the German country and it was a bit disorganized. I would argue there was no country there until they were unified sort of thing. So... It's not going to be a one-country government because the the term the concept of countries will be like, oh, yeah, sure, one city-state's going to rule the whole world. No one's talking about, like, which city-state's going to rule the world. Is it going to be New York or is it going to be Athens, right? Because we don't do city-states anymore. They're not a useful political entity. There's a couple left behind, but they're not how we describe the world and politics anymore. I think things like the EU, the United States is an interesting one because it is a federation, but it is technically a country. But I think thing, but it's, it's quite similar to the EU in some regards in that, the different states are quite disparate in their views and their politics and their cultures. Uh, they do all speak the same languages, which is an edge, but things like the EU is what I was expecting to the one world government to come out of. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, when I just think of one world government, I think I just naturally think of authoritarianism. And yeah, maybe yeah, that's just sure. like, maybe that's the like zeitgeist of like and conspiracy theorists and stuff like that is like, oh, there's this secret world government and they're making all the decisions and making people disappear or whatever. But there's a bit of that. And I think rarely would a one world government in fiction be portrayed positively. I think that most people think of that as a dystopia. So I don't disagree. It just seems like a logical combination of bigger and bigger groups of people. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I'm glad I raised that point. I think that's a good point to knock it off before 
Well, just so I can go have a drink, to be honest. Go have a drink. I'll sit here. We've got a very quick from the Discord, which I've already lost. Where is it? And this touches on the great stagnation and how maybe not stagnant it is. I'll link it to you. But the 90s, to me, doesn't feel that long ago. It's certainly right in the middle of the great stagnation. Sort of if you think the great stagnation started in the 70s and is continuing to today, then what I have for you is a photo of Pluto in 1994. So the very middle of the great stagnation and a photo of Pluto from 2019. And the photo of Pluto from 1994 is like a few grey dots and it's about 10 pixels by 10 pixels. And the photo from 2019 is a fully fledged planet and looks gorgeous. And like, I think this is maybe, I don't know, this is the incremental progress that we can get over the time when it comes to camera technology and space technology and satellite technology. And 1994 doesn't seem that long ago and space certainly seemed like a big industry. My uncle, as I think I've mentioned, works in space. Work from home must be real weird for me. 1994 was like seven years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, but no, it definitely wasn't. Um, so the, you know, my favorite illustration of how science progresses, images of Pluto a quarter century apart. If you click no other link in the, the show notes, and I don't know whether anyone ever does click any links in the show notes, but I like putting them together and it makes me feel like I'm part of the work of building this podcast. This photo is amazing because the difference in 25 years is the difference between like a pixelated blob that is nothing and a full photo of a planet in high definition that looks gorgeous. Yeah, it's a, uh, I've seen that picture of, Pluto before, except not coloured. So obviously that's like, I don't know, some judgment of additional readings that they've just layered on over the top rather than being directly a photo. Yeah, some of these colours of space are often faked, depending on how you want to define fake. But yeah, no, it's super cool. Super cool demonstration of it. What's actually also interesting is um, another podcast I listened to, a bit of a silly one, the Unmade podcast. So it's Brady Harron from uh, Numberphile and used to do Hello Internet. They've introduced a section called Moon of the Week where he just rattles off moons and stuff like that. Moon of and the Week. One of the recent episodes, he was talking about the moon of transneptunal objects. So the next, right. if we still had the old definitions of planet that captured Pluto as a planet, this would have been the 10th planet, basically. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, which was like somewhat detected in, I think it was 2001. And then they've managed to like, figure out that it had a moon about five years later and then they've actually got a picture of the moon I think recently and it's like crazy wow. like just the I did not think that astronomy honestly still made those kind of steps in our local solar system in our solar system yeah it all seemed to be more far reaching than that I thought we're like yeah we pretty much got the solar system nailed we're looking at other galaxies now but there's still progress to be made everywhere so super interesting that was good from the Discord. People, come join the Discord. It's fun. Come join the Discord. It's fun now. We link good YouTube videos and stuff too. Lots of good stuff in there. Oh, yeah, the thing on combat boots and jerry oh, cans. Jerry cans. So good. Oh, really? Okay, no, I'm going to watch combat boots and jerry cans. Damn it. Watch jerry cans. Don't worry about it. Like, combat boots was good. Don't get me wrong. But jerry cans is where it's at. Mm, all right, man. i got to do it. All right, you know what time it is. It's coffee bed time. Ha, I tricked you. It's review our old coffee bets time. No, I'm so doomed. <laughs> I spent half an hour uh, going through the coffee bets that haven't been paid out. Now, we might have talked about some of these, but I've just like, there's quite a lot of them that we haven't paid out because we had a six month break in the podcast, obviously. Yep. So I want to go through a few of them. What percentage of Australians will be vaccinated by COVID? We did pull our fingers out and really got that up. You thought less than 75 by the end of last year and it was sort of 
96% of eligible. I don't know. You could argue that against me if you wanted to say, oh, no, I was counting the two-year-olds as well and they're still legal. Yeah, no, we specifically discussed in that episode whether we'd include children or not. And we okay, said good. I'm going to be relying on your memory for another one because I wrote down the bet and then I didn't write down who was on which side of it. <laughs> okay. I'll try and be honest. So we had uh, the federal minimum wage in the USA. You thought for some reason that it would be greater than $12.50 as of the start of this year with a fully, I guess that was a liberal president, a liberal senate and a liberal house of representatives, but they have not, yep. they have not done that. They have kept the minimum wage at $7.5, I believe. Uh, um, damn. Vastly, vastly lower. Number of yes episodes on YouTube. Oh, you bet that I couldn't get two up there. I think I got exactly two up there. I, got four. <laughs> you I wonder got how many exactly views I've got. I should, uh, I should go and have a look to see how many uh, views I've got. I've certainly paid you for be, that one already, but okay, that's fine. Maybe it'll be 10,000 of them and I'll be like, oh my God, we're super famous and I never even knew. And then I'll put them all on YouTube. No, I'm pretty sure there's like five views because it still comes in my recommended because I subscribe to it. <laughs> okay, well, sadly, we tried. We talked about the price of used cards, and I had at the time been doing some data science on um, investigating the price of Porsche Caymans. I think they've gone up by about 9% since we made that bet, which wow. means prices for used cars are still going up. But what I learned more than anything is that I have learned a lot about software engineering in the past year, and I should not have been left near software back then. It was really very bad code that I wrote. <laughs> what was the bet, though? It will, will a Porsche Cayman be cheaper according to a very complicated algorithm that Chris devised? So I have it. Oh, no. No, you won that. You you won that. Oh, my God. I won something? Yes, because you said that? they would be more expensive. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought that they had to come down, but I don't know, some combination of inflation and everything that rich people like getting more expensive through COVID because rich people aren't going on holidays, which is where they apparently spend an enormous amount of their money. So now they want durable toys. So Brian won a coffee and Chris won some humility. There you go. I got a little bit of humility. Well played, Brian. Well played. We talked about wage inflation, and I couldn't find... So we talked about 25th percentile wage inflation, greater than 5.5% in Q1 2022. Was that Australia or the USA? That was USA. It was based on Bank of Richmond data. Okay, so it was 916 overall percent wage growth. So Yeah. Um, the, the idea that the lowest end of that would be lower than 5.5 seems vanishingly unlikely, so I'm going to call that a win for me, if you don't mind. Yep. I will pay that because inflation has been big. We've done USA total factor productivity growth. So there's this idea that the great stagnation is over. So TFP is, what does it normally run around? Two? Yeah, let's say that. One. So we had a bet as to whether it would be greater than 3.5% for the full year 2021. I said no. You said yes. This was actually a pretty good, I'm, I'm hoping we had a really complicated back and forth where we both brought in statistics from all over the place and agreed on exactly 3.5 because it was 32 so it was like wow. pretty line ball there. It is certainly a high year. I still get the bet, but uh, it was very close to that line. Wow, there you go. We had a bet on the travel between Singapore and the Eastern Australian states, free for the vaccinated as of 31st of March, only about a few weeks ago. But I don't know which side of the bet I was on. I don't know, like, uh, no, I'm usually optimistic, but maybe not in this instance. That was on the episode with Cam. Ah, oh, yeah, because he lives in Singapore. Yeah. I can't I remember which side. I don't know. He's a man of mystery. All right, Cam. I know you listen. Let us know. Maybe Cam wins. Cam wins coffee from both of us. <laughs> sure. Like, whatever. If he comes around, I'll buy him a coffee. Definitely buy him a coffee. And he can indeed travel vaccine-free to the eastern states of Australia. And I think possibly the western states of Australia. Western Australia has finally brought down the laser fence and allowed people in. Cool. Uh, and that's all the ones I had on my list to talk about. Okay, that wasn't as much of a horror show as I expected. There you go. What's the news in Diablo 2, Brian? Do you now... 
own Diablo 2, you know, as in the intellectual property, because you keep getting bigger and bigger in this community. So I think, assume the next thing is that you're CEO of Blizzard. So the last update was I was running an eight-man team. Yeah. This update is I am now a permanent world record holder in the eight-man speed run. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. What does a permanent world record holder mean? So they patched it in the last, like, oh. two weeks. But I was on the world record team for a two hours, three minute run all the way through all three difficulties, all the way through to hell. So fast. And now it's faster. Like they're getting in the last couple of days, they've gotten like a 155 or something, but it's on a new patch. So I am the permanent world record holder because we were holding the world record for patch 2.3 and you can't go back and replay patch 2.3. So really, because it's a fully online game. They're in the record books. Amazing. Do you reckon the patch has made it faster or slower? So much faster. They have buffed really? so many characters to boost the early game and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I, so they're actually patching Diablo 2 because I had this sort of figured they'd just put new shiny graphics on it. And I'm like, well, no more patches for you for 20 years, but they're actually doing balance change. Yeah, balance changes, introducing new rune words, lots of stuff. Really? So, yep. I did not I did not know. I mean, I guess it sort of makes sense now that you say it, but I did not pick any of that. I thought it was a one and done and goodbye. We're handing it back to the grad, which is why they haven't started a green ladder six months in. Six months in? 12 months in? Six months in. Yep. Friday this week, the ladder is supposed to go live. And it was when they actually put up the announcement, they said it was supposed to happen on April 1st because they forgot to change the date because they had some server issue. Uh, (laughs) It was supposed to actually go live a month ago. So there you go. Are they going to launch their eighth character, Death Knights? Oh, that'd be fun. There was like a big rumor going around that there was going to be an act six because there's five acts. That'd slow down your speed runs. (laughs) And Mr. Llama was like joking about it, just trolling his chat. And then someone just took that clip out of context and made a whole big story of it. And then it ended up just going around and like being a bunch of viral videos. And he had to come out and be like, guys, I was clearly trolling. Like, what the heck? Funny. I do like a good internet community. I'd like to be in a fun internet community again. I feel like all the internet communities I'm in are so serious. The Matt Levine Appreciation Society is pretty good. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day I'm going to get a job in the anti-Musk division of the SEC. <laughs> what a classic. All right. All right we've wanted folks. to keep us on topic. I think we've got to stop. This is too much nonsense even for us. Cheers, everybody. Bye. Good, I cough now. I can do that again without laughing while I say it. <laughs>